Hello, and welcome again to another edition of the Conservative Historian Podcast. This one titled, The Four Pillars of the Modern Academy. Is this institution necessary? August of 2020. In the newspaper, The Greek Reporter, an article written by Nick Camporis entitled, The Platonic Academy of Athens, the World's First University, states, quote, The Platonic Academy, or simply the Academy, was a famous school in ancient Athens, founded by Plato in 387 BCE, and located a couple of miles outside the ancient city named, logically enough, Academia, after the legendary hero Academos, unquote. The article goes on to describe the Academy in Plato's day. Quote, the Academy was not an educational institution as we know it in modern times, but because it had the characteristic of a school and covered a wide variety of topics, such as philosophy, astronomy, mathematics, politics, physics, and more, it is considered to be the first university in the entire world. Unquote. In an article written by Chelsea Shea for Asia Society, the author states, quote, It may sound incredible, but China's formal education system was established nearly two millennia ago. The imperial education and examination system in China is estimated to have been founded as early as the Han Dynasty, which reigned from 206 BCE to 220 CE, unquote. According to the website Muslim Heritage, in an article written by Subai al-Azawi and entitled The Abbasids, House of Wisdom in Baghdad, stated, quote, The Caliph Harun al-Rashid, who reigned for 23 years from 786 to 809 CE, built a magnificent scientific academy in which was housed a huge bookstore containing manuscripts and books about various subjects in the arts and the sciences and different languages. In this academy, translators, scientists, scribes, authors, men of letters, writers, copyists, and others used to meet every day for translation, reading, writing, scribing, discourse, dialogue, and discussion, unquote. And the University of Bologna website, quote, the origins of the University of Bologna go way back. It is considered the oldest university in the Western world. Its history is intertwined with the great names of science and literature. It is a keystone and a point of reference for European culture. In 1088, the Bologna Studium was founded by students and teachers. It is the oldest university in the Western world and the oldest continuing university of all time. Unquote. The United States university system is built not on decades, nor even centuries of tradition, but millennia. And not just a Western tradition, but one that comes from all parts of the globe. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, or the NCES, Nearly 20 million Americans attended a two- or four-year university or college in any given year. In one of the more recent studies of university in America, U.S. News and World Report said the following, quote, 
there were 4,298 degree granting post-secondary institutions in the U.S. as of the 2017-2018 school year, unquote. And another study by the NCES that in 1980, there were approximately 4,360 degree granting post-secondary institutions in the United States. The total number of universities has declined at a rate of one and a half degree universities over 40 years. But this number drops when highly specific universities are considered. For example, this closure list includes the Le Cordon Bleu College of Culinary Arts in Chicago, Illinois, and the American Beauty Academy in Wheaton, Maryland. When the for-profit schools, who were intensely targeted for destruction by the Obama administration education department are considered, the closer shrinks even more. Writing for Reason Magazine, journalist A. Barton Hinkle wrote in 2016, quote, the education department has just imposed the death penalty on ITT technical institutes, even though the school chain has not been accused of wrongdoing. The department carried out the extrajudicial killing by bureaucratic fiat, imposing stringent financial requirements and declining federal aid to new students. The result? 40,000 students left hanging, 8,000 people suddenly without a job, and huge taxpayer liability for federal student loans. This is just one example of a for-profit university that was shut down by fiat. So once the focused vocational schools, such as the aforementioned Le Cordon Bleu, and the for-profit institutions are removed, we are left with a handful of traditional non-profit universities that almost never close. Now, that does happen, such as Wheelock College in Boston in 2018 and the College of New Rochelle in 2019. In the case of the latter, financial chicanery played a part. As is often the case, it is not just too many colleges and too few students or even a lack of tuition money now that the federal government has stepped in. Instead, colleges often fail because they are just poorly run. Yet again, these closings are still very rare. Now, let's contrast the incredible amber-like preservation of colleges with the dynamism of business. Quote, over 627,000 new businesses open each year, according to the Small Business Association. At the same time, over 595,000 businesses close each year. These latest statistics were in the late 2000s. The number of new startups has fluctuated since 2004, rising to a peak in 2006 with 670,000 openings before declining over the next couple of years. Roughly, the United States tends to boast over 29 million small businesses, but as noted in a given time, approximately a three-year period, as many as 10% of those businesses are turned over. Contrast that within the nonprofit college sector, that number shrinks down to roughly around 2 to 1%. It is not just the preservation of colleges themselves, but the fundamental pedagogy that has endured over the centuries. 
In a work entitled Hypatia Teaching at Alexandria, British artist Robert Trewick Bone, who painted in the late 1700s, shows the late 4th century Alexandrian professor lecturing a group of students. If one were to update the format and the clothes, it would not be dissimilar to today's classroom settings. The 11th century Italian attending Bologna University might not see today's basic teaching methods as fundamentally different from his time. Since the 1880s, humanity has effectively eliminated famine and disease, and yes, including COVID, from 90% of the population. The automobile, the airplane, cement roads, refrigerators, ovens and microwaves, and air conditioning, thank God, because it is 91 degrees as I write this, but not in my office, all of these things have been introduced to society, fundamentally changing the way we uh, conduct our transportation, the way we work, and the way we interact with each other. But university teaching methodology is mostly the same. So why are colleges thus exempt from the usual disruption improvements that affect other aspects of life? It is because there is a perception of college that is unique and seen, especially in today's world, as absolutely indispensable. We can reject rotary phones in favor of smart technology, say goodbye to Sears, department stores, and shopping malls in support of online purchasing. We can use our smartphone device to conjure an automobile in minutes, abrogating the need for even a driver's license or a car. But we preserve college almost exactly the same as it was in much of Plato's, Hypatia's, and the founding of the University of Bologna's days. Today's university exists primarily for four critical reasons. Think about that. Here are the four pillars of the academy. Number one, to prepare and position students for postgraduate careers. Number two, for an in-person social experience representing the transition from parents' homes to full independence. Number three, the offer of collegiate sports. And number four, learning critical thinking skills that could be applied to any vocation or really any aspect of life. Those are the reasons, those are the goals, those are fundamentally why universities exist, or at least the things that people today either presume to get out of them or actually do get out of them today. If you took out those four things, there would not be a cause for the university system. Let me reemphasize those four again. Preparing for a career, social interaction as is a prelude to full adulthood, sports, and fundamentally critical thinking skills that could be used in any vocation, in any point of life. Let us start with the first of those. The ability of college to deliver us a job, the ability of college to deliver us a career. In a piece written last month entitled Defund the University, I wrote about Brian Kaplan and his The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Essentially, the book is about the first pillar of the university, that this improves the ability to obtain a job and launch a career. 
The problem is that this is not accurate. As Kaplan notes, education is not about getting a job. Rather, it is signaling to potential employers your perceived value and limiting the benefit of those who do not possess certain degrees. Kaplan notes, quote, If you want the best education in the world for free, you can just move to Princeton and start attending classes unofficially. There's almost no effort made to stop you. You just won't get a diploma, which makes it nearly pointless because college is more about impressing people than learning useful info, unquote. Kaplan also asks a very simple question. Do you want the education and not the degree or the degree and not the education? Come on, 99% of truthful respondents will answer the degree because they understand that potential employers will not ask what they learned in their stats class, much much less what they learned in queer intersectional studies, but they will surely note before the interview whether you have a degree, meaning the actual content of the college curriculum is beside the point. I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast to do what I call the Kaplan-Princeton question. Do you want to go to Princeton and take the classes but don't get the diploma or skip the classes and get the diploma? It's a very simple way to root out the real value of college and what it is that everybody is really seeking. Now, certain professionals do need their undergraduates and some postgraduates to have basic training. Engineering, nursing, and business degrees are just a sampling of these types of crucial practices that need to be learned someplace. In almost none of those cases do you want to put an individual in front of a, uh, a customer in front of a design group, or in front of a patient without some fundamental background training. The challenge is that colleges ladle onto these major requirements that parents and students have to subsidize in addition of classes that will have no meaning to their professions. Let me give you one example. Marquette University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin has a very well-regarded nursing program, but To attain a bachelor's of science degree nursing, a student also needs to take courses in English, theology, philosophy, and something that Marquette calls core courses, but are really fundamentally about ethics, morality, and society itself. According to the NCES, quote, of the 1.8 million bachelor's degrees awarded in 2015 through 2016, about 331,000, or 18%, were in STEM fields, unquote. 18%, meaning that 82% do not fall into these categories of engineering or nursing or that type of profession. Now, technically, business training is not STEM curricula, but in business school programs, two things prevail. Regardless of whether you wish to track to marketing or finance, you have to take both, and sales, and IT, and operations, and business law, and strategy. These additional classes are in addition to the aforementioned English, or history, or philosophy, or ethics classes that will, again, 
more than likely have absolutely no impact on your business career. Become a business major and take a whole lot of classes that will mean nothing to your career and nothing in order to even obtain that first job. The key is have the degree. Second, the actual information imparted in your business class will likely have no impact on your business career. Villanova and their celebrated business school describe their training. Quote, the Villanova School of Business develops business leaders for a better world through the Augustinian values of truth, community, caring, and leading through service, unquote. What exactly any of these values has to do with identifying markets, building innovative products, streamlining operations, designing efficient IT systems, identifying and hiring the best talent, and managing the myriad of legal issues? And what about managing a large group of egos? It is very hard to see how those things apply directly. Now, is it good that a person would obviously bring to whatever their job is that sense of truth and caring and wanting to have a service commitment? Absolutely. But again, do you need to pay the $150,000 to obtain those kind of values? And presumably, if you're an 18 or 19-year-old attending college and you have to learn those values, Think about those values we're talking about, truth, caring, and leading through service. If you were a 19-year-old and you're having to first time learn about that through college, there's something wrong, or maybe there's something wrong with how you were raised. But in any event, $150,000, and remember, every single one of those classes that you take to learn that truth and service and all of those things is one less class that you are taking that will actually make you better at your career. One other factor unknown to those Greeks, Chinese, Arabs, and Italians who pioneered the academy is the impact of online learning. Though the thought of Plato with his narcissism on the internet should strike fear, he would have embraced the possibilities all the way through. Why confine his efforts to a teaching Athenians when he could have been delivering his philosophy as king messages to Thebans, Corinthians, or even Spartans? Of course, Plato didn't have the internet, but we do. And one of the points of universities was to serve as a location for knowledge. Remember that description of the Abbasid Library in Baghdad, one place to get all of the knowledge that is necessary. But what if knowledge is everywhere and in a sense, nowhere. Writing for the Smithsonian, Subhash Cox states, quote, as a professor who researches artificial intelligence and offers distance learning courses, I can say that online education is a disruptive challenge for which colleges are ill-prepared. Lack of student demand is already closing 800 out of roughly 10,000 engineering colleges in India. And online learning has put as many as half the colleges and universities in the U.S. at risk, not closed yet, but at risk of shutting down in the next couple decades as remote students get comparable educations over the internet without living on campus or taking classes in person, unquote. So let's move on to the second pillar of the academy, the concept of campus interaction. It is difficult to downplay this critical aspect of the university. 
The ability to successfully transition from the family home to living alone is seemingly attractive. The fundamental problem is with the rest of the narrative of this piece. Without the career training or critical thinking, what is the values to dollar spent? When a $150,000 is spent on a summer camp or a giant service experience, it is not worth it. Additionally, college, going back to Plato, was never actually intended to serve as a child to an adult transitional point. Though colleges in one form or another have been around for millennia, the concept of perpetual adolescence is a 20th century construct. It was not considered bizarre that Alexander of Macedon commanded a third of his father's army at the age of 16 at the Battle of Coronea. Romans believe that children were adults by the age of 18. The reality is, is that there is a substantial industry within the modern world for the continuance of adolescence. College is chief among them. The concept of parenting is a separate category because it is also a choice. There is no choice in becoming an adult. How many works of art from Shakespeare's Henry IV, Prince Hal, to the 1980 Dudley Moore film Arthur, or the 2011 film Thor, have featured grown children who needed to become adults? Is it not conceivable that Americans could have their children attend vocational schools or corporate internships and spend the rest of their lives building relationships? The entire concept of putting this necessary transition on the backs of colleges and then paying a king's ransom for the privilege must be reconsidered. The third pillar is sports. At Stanford, as one example, the university is a strong proponent of sports and physical activity. Quote, from its founding in 1891, Stanford University's leaders have believed that physical activity is valuable for its own sake and that vigorous exercise is complementary to the educational purposes of the university. Within this context, for human development, it is the mission of Stanford Athletics to offer a wide range of high-quality programs that will encourage and facilitate all participants to realize opportunities for championship athletic participation, physical fitness, health, and well-being, unquote. This all sounds good, but a more accurate statement would be that they offer a narrow range of programs. When colleges talk about college sports, they are really only talking about two of them, basketball and football, and both of those would be in the men's category, as those are the only two that make money. Just to put paid to that concept, Stanford recently announced that it will, quote, discontinue 11 of our varsity sports programs after the 2020-21 academic year. Men's and women's fencing, gone. Field hockey, lightweight, rowing, men's rowing, co-ed and women's sailing, squash and synchronized swimming, men's volleyball, and wrestling, unquote. If they could get away with it, colleges would consider eliminating everything but the big two. And think about some of those names. They got rid of wrestling. It's interesting that wrestling was as one of the chief sports in ancient Greece. So obviously that sport goes all the way to and before the academy, but no longer at Stanford. And again, that concept of, of physical activity is valuable for its own sake. And vigorous exercise is complementary to the educational purposes of the university. But only... I wish they had put this into their website, but only if it makes 
money. If they could get away with it, colleges would consider eliminating everything but the big two. The elimination of these extraneous sports occurred even though Stanford has a $27 billion, with a B, endowment. If one-tenth of 1% of that endowment were spent on sports, that is $27 million. Those 11 sports would be funded, saved. Wrestling comes back to Stanford. In a July 15th, 2020 article for National Review by Jim Garrity, the author states, quote, Stanford is representative of perhaps 100 colleges and universities with lucrative football and basketball programs, all of which are now facing an unparalleled funding crisis as a result of, you guessed it, the coronavirus pandemic. The cancellation of the NCAA basketball tournament this March cost schools a projected $375 million in revenue, unquote. Because many large colleges are part of state government, it always seemed unseemly but logical to note that in most states, the highest paid state employee is not the governor or some long-standing university chancellor who was recruited from Harvard. Instead, it is the football or basketball coach. How much? The University of Alabama's Nick Saban, head football coach, will make nearly $9 million per year. Who is number two? Why the University of Auburn's head coach at almost $7 million per annum. Several of Saban's assistant coaches cross seven figures. So what is the salary of the highest paid non-sport employee? That would be David Bronner at $699,000 per year. Now, that is a hefty salary in its own right, but Bronner's role in the state of Alabama is to be in charge of investing the pension of hundreds of thousands of Alabama state employees. Yes, he runs the State Employee Retirement Pension Fund. He's basically an investor and a banker. All of these people's future, including their retirement, is in Bronner's hands. And yet his salary is still 7% of Sabin's. And what do the players make? The real stars of the event that fans in the stadiums and millions on TV pay to watch? A scholarship. These scholarships can range between $10,000 to $30,000 depending on in versus out of state and again, these figures are talking about the University of Alabama. The star running back of Alabama gets about one-third of a tenth of a percent of what Saban gets. Talk about inequality. Over in the NFL, it is a little different. The highest paid player, Patrick Mahomes, who just inked a $40 million per year contract. The highest paid coach in the league, John Gruden, he gets a quarter of that. Now, since a quarter of Mahomes' contract is $10 million a year, I don't think we're going to see John Gruden hurting. But nevertheless, at least there is a comparable status. Remember that running back at Alabama. That scholarship, one-third of a tenth of a percent of what Saban gets. And since football and basketball are the only profitable sports on campus, if the players were to begin earning paychecks commiserate with the revenues generated, the system would more than likely collapse. As we shall see later, the margins are not as big as one would think. 
And what are these revenues? How do universities who have to raise tuitions pay for this largesse continually? As Garrity notes, quote, ESPN paid $470 million per year just for broadcast rights to the college football playoff. And as recently as the beginning of this year, was said to be hammering out a $300 million per year deal with the Southeastern Conference to broadcast its games. USA Today calculates that college football generates at least $4.1 billion in fiscal year revenue for the athletics departments at the 50-plus public schools in the Power Five conferences, or an average of more than $78 million per school, unquote. Now, for those college football Luddites who don't know the ins and outs of what exactly we're talking about here, understand that college football, and to a lesser extent basketball, is definitely a game of the haves and the have-nots. Those Power Five conferences, including the Southeastern Conference, of which Alabama is a member, they include the Big Ten and schools in the Southwest and along the Pacific Coast. Obviously grouped into those five, those members of those five uh, big power conferences, they make a lot of money. The rest of the conferences, not so much, but enough to keep going. Now, why have universities made what many, myself included, think is a Faustian bargain with big-time sports? Again, Garrity, quote, At the highest levels, college football and basketball offer fan experiences on par with the NFL or the NBA. They stir campus enthusiasm, provide hours of free advertising for the university, and of course, bring in enormous amounts of money each fall and winter, helping cover the costs of other college sports that don't bring in enormous revenues, unquote. But that last point is a shibboleth. Only the most extensive, most profitable programs, remember those big five power conferences, such as Alabama, can generate enough profit to subsidize other programs. Read non-SEC or Big Ten programs, such as Ohio University. Quote, by contrast, Ohio University does not make enough from football or men's basketball to cover the losses by other sports. Unquote according to a Forbes article written by Christy Dosh. And what is missing from any of these analyses? Any contribution from sports revenues to the other parts of the campus. Nick Saban and his team might be able to generate over $90 million for stadium renovations, which was recently spent on the University of Alabama Stadium, and a $9 million training facility, with a state-of-the-art nutrition center, again, brand spanking new at Alabama, but there is very little left over for anything non-sports. In fact, there's nothing. The University of Alabama currently runs a debt of more than $200 million. And for even the largest of big-time programs, what happens when these sports are no longer able to be played in the COVID era? Armageddon, essentially, that $90 million stadium at Alabama, it sits empty. And that $9 million training facility, well, that thing, if you jam enough players into it, could easily become coronavirus U. Two of the largest professional sports, 
baseball and hockey have gotten along just fine without relying on colleges as essentially their farm system. In the case of hockey, according to the NHL website, quote, today's NHL is not the same 24-team league that existed when Commissioner Bettman took office midway through the 1992-93 season. It has grown to 31 teams, from 787 players to more than 1,000. Regular season attendance in the NHL in 93 was slightly more than 14 million. This season, it will exceed 22 million. Expansion fees 25 years ago were about $50 million. They are 10 times that now at $500 million. And next expansion, should it happen, would carry an NHL fee of $650 million. Franchises today are more valuable than ever, unquote. And this is hockey. And though there are hockey players in college who go on to the NHL, college hockey does not exist today as that big-time sport that is essentially a feeder to the NHL. A lot of NHL players will start with the league in their development programs out of high school. All of this without those colleges. And one other point. We get it. Many alumni are married to the sports teams. But when some of these colleges can no longer tap into the piggy bank of football, not just to pay for other sports, but just to pay for the football, where will they go for funds? And keep in mind, so many of these universities are public institutions. So if you live in Mobile, Alabama, but prefer to send your kid to the University of the South, you're probably going to find out really soon where Alabama is going to go to fund the University of Alabama, Auburn, and all of those other public institutions that at one time relied on football, and they're not going to let that football program go down. Nick Saban's got to be paid, so they're going to come for you, and they're going to come for your money. Why should our Mobile resident have to pay for some Crimson Tide devotee? The entire college sports complex is now facing an unprecedented disaster and is likely to take much of the university, including tuition-paying parents, on a ride. The fourth pillar was a focus on critical thinking and problem-stalling. Now, to me, out of all of these reasons, this is probably one of the most important. Now, I myself attended a small liberal arts college, and problem-solving, critical thinking, the ability to take a complex issue, break it down into component parts, and build it back up into cogent uh, concept was one of the things that was taught at that time many, many years ago. And so I actually think the ability to think critically, the ability to do that kind of breakdown is, is incredibly important. And I don't think it's fundamentally done at the high school level. These values are not necessarily taught by parents, so colleges might provide a pretty unique way to find them. The Brookings Institution defined critical thinking as, quote, critical thinking uses the skills or strategies that are most likely to lead to the desired outcome. It is purposeful, reasoned, and goal-directed. It is the sort of thinking we should be engaging in when deciding what and whom to believe, which of two job offers to accept, 
or whether vaccinations do cause autism. It is different from, but often relies upon simple recall. Example, what does 5 plus 7 equal? Unsupported opinions, I like vanilla ice cream, and automated actions, stopping at a red light, unquote. Chris Green, Chris Green, associate professor at Marshall University, puts it this way, quote, over the last 40 years, the basic mechanisms and vocabulary of such rational argumentation have become central to higher education. At the same time, the need to to demonstrate the utility of higher education has continued to rise as an even wider set of Americans gain access to it, unquote. At Kansas State, their website states, quote, strong critical thinking skills are important to employers and highlights the value of a degree from Kansas State University, unquote. That last one was from Pat Bosco, Vice President for Student Life and Dean. And Indiana's Purdue has an entire course devoted to critical thinking, quote, This course is designed to develop reasoning skills and analytic abilities based on an understanding of the rules or forms and the content of good reasoning. This course will cover moral and scientific reasoning in addition to everyday problem solving. This course is intended primarily for students with non-technical backgrounds. Unquote. I agree with every single word of those statements. But what is the reality of the status of critical thinking on the campus today? Derek Bach, the former president of Harvard University, claims, quote, colleges and universities, for all the benefits they bring, accomplish far less for their students than they should, unquote. According to Bach, students also cannot often, quote, reason clearly or perform competently in analyzing complex, non-technical problems. Unquote. In other words, they cannot think critically. Richard Aram, who wrote Academically Adrift, Limited Learning on College Campuses, a study of more than 2,300 undergraduates at colleges and universities across the country, found that many of those students improved little or not at all in key areas, especially critical thinking. Aram states, quote, Policymakers and practitioners have increasingly become apprehensive about undergraduate education as there is growing evidence that individual and institutional interests and incentives are not closely aligned with a focus on undergraduate interests, unquote. Now, that study was released in 2013 and was widely assailed by colleges, not shockingly. So more recently, The James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal ran an update and stated, quote, As recently as May of 2016, professional services firms Payscale and Future Workplace reported that 60% of employers believe new college graduates lack critical thinking skills based on their survey of over 76,000 managers and executives. Colleges and universities across the country aren't adequately teaching thinking skills, despite loudly insisting to anyone who will listen that they are, unquote. So, if colleges are not preparing students for future careers or are not teaching critical thinking, what are they doing? 
they are teaching diversity and inclusion as they define it. According to U.S. News and World Report, here is their definition. Quote, diversity often means race, ethnicity, or tribal affiliation, but also extends well beyond these factors too: sexual identity and orientation, income level, first-generation status, cultural background, and gender, unquote. On one level, this sounds like an okay thing, aside from the apparent cost, but note what is omitted from this definition and omitted from almost every college diversity statement, and that would be the diversity of ideas. Skin color or sexual orientation mattered, but differentiated approaches and the critical thinking that would be necessary for individual thought is omitted. In the case of one university, Yale, there is, are you ready, an Office of Diversity and Inclusion, a Dean of Diversity and Faculty Development, an Office of Gender and Campus Culture, and a dizzying array of similar positions and programs. At present, more than 150 full-time staff and student representatives serve in some pro-diversity role. Again, None of these 150 people are responsible for ideas, but instead skin color and sexual orientation. In an article for the Wall Street Journal on August 2nd, 2019, by Yale Law Professor Anthony Cronman, the author notes, quote, The transformation of diversity into a pedagogical theory has weakened our democracy by undermining the common ground of reason on which citizens must strive to meet. The significant confusion is the equation of a diversity of ideas with a diversity of race, ethnicity, and sexual preference. The hegemony of diversity has several pernicious effects. One is that it encourages minority students and eventually all students to think that a departure from the beliefs and sentiments associated with their group is a violation of the terms in which they were admitted to the university. The upshot is that students are lauded for the beliefs and feelings they bring to their school on account of their separate identities rather than being reminded of what they all stand to gain by being there. The inestimable privilege of joining in a rational inquiry that subjects every one of their sentiments and beliefs to the same rigorous demand for explanation and justification. Unquote. Remember that Villanova Business School goal? This is what is written on that section. Not the core university diversity section of Villanova. No, this is within the business school. Quote, VSB will be a leader in creating an inclusive, equitable, and diverse community that serves all members and stakeholders and reflects the university's commitment to equality, justice, and mutual respect. VSB will also seek to increase the representation of underrepresented groups across race, gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, socioeconomic, religious, and other social identities and backgrounds, unquote. The video of the Dean of the Business School talks also about inclusiveness and diversity, noting that her staff has, quote, backgrounds in this, unquote. Not really sure what that means, and definitely not certain what does this have to do with creating a profitable enterprise. 
Impossible to say, because in no place on the entire Villanova business page will one see the word profit, will one see the word competition. And just to add some fuel to the fire, Villanova stands to the right of several business schools because of its Catholic Augustinian ideology. In other words, this is one of the more conservative approaches. Another thought relating to these programs is their end goal. The ability to teach critical thinking is perpetual. But what if the United States happily, at some point in the future, achieved a post-racial society in some circles? In the case of Yale, what would those 150 people then do? Essentially, we will never become post-racial because there exists an entrenched bureaucracy that would lose income and power if that were to ever happen. Additionally, when the time came to dismantle such organizations, the cry of racism would resound in and of itself, and the university presidents would buckle, as the vast majority has, to these charges. The very decency of the American people is often used as a cudgel to beat any dissenting views, to beat people who would bring critical thinking to these issues back into line. And by post-racial, what is it that I would be talking about? Imagine if black incomes close to similar to white ones. As of 2019, there was roughly a $15,000 annualized family gap between white incomes, this excludes Asian and Latinos, compared with, let's say, African Americans. Or of wealth, currently around 3% for African Americans, started to close to the relative percentage of 13% being the matching the black population. If that were to happen, one could use an egg timer in which the same diversity advocates would pivot from incomes or wealth to STEM jobs or CEOs or workers in Caterpillar's Aurora, Illinois plant. They would say, well, there's only 50 out of the 800 workers are black. That must be a racist attitude that needs to be fixed. By whom? By the very diversity workers now so endemic in universities would be the first people on the front line saying, see, racism still exists and we need to keep our jobs. Regarding that critical thinking, as Cromman goes on to state, quote, today our colleges and universities are doing a poor job of meeting this need. And the idea of diversity is at least partly to blame. It has become the basis of an illiberal and anti-rational academic cult that undermines the spirit of self-reliance and the commitment to truth on which higher education and the whole of our democracy depends, unquote. Colleges do not fundamentally help with the vast majority of jobs and careers. Universities are not crucial in providing a new or unique social platform. Other sports leagues seem to survive and prosper without colleges. And colleges do not provide critical thinking. Instead, they substitute leftist indoctrination in place of rigorous academics. We always hear about a raging desire to transform this and transform that. It is curious why the whirlwind of transformation still seems to stop at the door of the academy. The left, which loves to transform everything, has little desire and less need to transform the academy. For them, it is working just fine. And of course, 
They wish to do away with critical thinking. If that were still prevalent in the academy, it might occur to many that we no longer need the university system. Thank you.